Hola y bienvenidos a Peruvians of USA, peruanos de Estados Unidos. Un podcast en español, inglés y spanglish donde compartimos las diversas historias del inmigrante peruano. Mi nombre es Natalie Sofía y soy una chica peruana que vive en los Estados Unidos por más de 20 años. Welcome to Peruvians of USA, the podcast in Spanish, English and Spanglish where we share the diversity of the Peruvian immigrant experience. My name is Natalie Sofia, a fellow Peruvian living in the U.S. for more than 20 years. So let's get started. Welcome, Melissa Rivero, to Peruvians of USA. I appreciate the time you're taking to speak with me and to share your story as an immigrant and as a Peruvian here in the U.S. Melissa, please introduce yourself to our audience. Hi, I'm Melissa Rivero, and I am a writer. And I'm also a lawyer, and I'm also a mother. I'm Like many of us, I have many things. Yes, and as I mentioned to you before the recording today, I read your entire book, The Affairs of the Falcons, and I gotta say, I love, love, love your book. I felt incredibly seen, not only because the family that you speak of in the story, it's a Peruvian family here in New York, but also how it's connected to the stories of Peru, the history, right? Things that happened there in the 80s and 90s. But there's also a lot of conversations about just our relationships that we have with our families. And so I just want to thank you, first of all, for writing a book and, and for incorporating Peruvian things like Tallarines Verdes. <laughs> and I, it's, it's like, I've never, I've never seen that, right? I never, I've read other books about immigrant stories and I've never seen Tallarines Verdes and like Chicha Morada being mentioned and things like that. And just, it's really those little things that make us feel seen. And so I just really want to thank you and congratulate you also for all the awards that you have won about because of the book. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how this process got started? Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for reading it. And I really do appreciate your kind words. To be honest, sometimes writing can be a labor, it's very much a labor of love. And sometimes it's, it's very hard to actually get to the page. And so when you hear people connect with the story, it's it's motivating to keep you going to the page um, and to show up to the page. Yeah, so the story actually was inspired by something that happened to my mother during her early years here in this country. She had to, she kept telling me over the years this incident that happened to her. And one day I just sat down and started imagining what it must have been like for someone in her position to have experienced what she experienced. That was the catalyst for writing that first scene. And then through that scene, I found my character. The protagonist, Anna, you know, just sort of introduced herself to me. I, I don't know how else to describe it through this one particular scene and another character did as well. And I, for lack of a better word, fell in love and almost inspired by her. I wanted to get to know this person more. And so I kept writing. Um, the next scene that I wrote was a very different scene. It didn't flow from that last scene, but it was another aspect of her life. And that's how I met the other characters. That's how I met her. Yeah, that's how I navigated her world through her. And I just kept coming back and I kept coming back. And I luckily had a lot of support from different writing communities. And so over the years, that kept me coming back to Anna and her story. Thank you for sharing that. Yes, Anna definitely it's encapsulates for me so much of my own mother's story and the things that she went through and maybe how she felt at different moments. I wish I could show you the book. I highlighted, I commented on different things in terms of like, this is, this is my mom's story. This is my dad's story. And so this is my 
uncle. It's the first book that I, I fully saw all aspects of my own experience. And so thank you for that. And just out of curiosity for our audience, like how long was this writing process for you? Probably took me from the time I wrote that first scene till I sold the manuscript. It was, I want to say about six or seven years. So now in between, I had children. So when I started it, I didn't have children. By the end of it, I had two. I worked full time for the most part during that, those, that, that entire stretch. And I didn't, and so I didn't have long stretches of time that I could completely dedicate to writing. I had contemplated maybe getting an MFA just so that I could actually have that time and build a community. But I found that one, like it was too expensive. Two, the only ones that were, you know, sort of like that offered money that were funded weren't necessarily in or around New York City. And I didn't need to work because three, I had student loans, like from my life, like all this debt that I had accumulated from college and law school. And so that didn't seem like a very practical thing to do, but I kept doing it. I kept coming, writing that is, I kept coming back to the page even after I had my second son. So when I had him, I was actually, it was actually a month after I had him that I got a fellowship from the Center for Fiction. And that really was, was what moved me to keep, to keep writing and to really take this seriously. And writing has been something that seems based on the acknowledgement. I also re read the acknowledgement section of your book has been with you from a very young age. Um, tell us a story about when your dad wrote, uh, read your first poem oh at yeah. the way before I even got to kindergarten. So I went into kindergarten right? Entonces este Lo primero que vi fui, fue un montón de novelas, right? I mean, my mom was constantly watching novelas at night and it was a way to escape. I forget the name of the novela, pero I remember Veronica Castro. Do you remember? I don't know if you, if you probably don't even remember this actress. She was this Mexican actress. Um, I don't remember the novela, but I remember loving the story and the feel. Y empecé a escribir like little, you know, little poems. Um, and then little stories, you know, con unas palabritas nada más, pero... But my dad, I remember he read it. He read one. I was so embarrassed, you know, porque hablaba de amor y de what I thought were tonterías, right? Um, but he started crying. You know, I was really, I was embarrassed because I'm like, oh my God, he caught me. He caught me writing about love. Oh my God. Um, how embarrassing. Pero no, but he started crying and he told me to keep writing. And no sé, like and I heard it and I understood, and I, I understood that it was okay for me to keep, to, to write. And so I kept writing stories as I was growing up. When I was a kid, I won several awards for some of like short stories that I would write or whatever. My mom still has my little plaques somewhere. From, you know, not from school, but from actual writing organizations, which I thought was really cool. But, um, you know, there's always that pressure, right? As a child of immigrants, you know, sacrificaron tanto por ti, you know, el mismo, el mismo cuento, right? And so you kind of feel like, okay, subconsciously, and in many cases, consciously, there's this imposition, I want to say, about you now having to have to having to have to give back somehow, right? Having to somehow make up for the sacrifices that your parents made for you. And so I felt writing was something that was almost a luxury, right? To be able to spend time just writing seemed very, very much a thing that only the privileged could access or could do. And so I went to college. I was like, the most practical thing for me to do is to study business. And so I did that. I needed to get a, a, a corporate job, you know, just something stable 
algo que yo pueda después, you know, mis, mis padres pueden decir, ah, mi hija es una profesional, bla, bla, bla. But, you know, I wasn't happy. And, and even though I wasn't happy and I thought this is what my parents wanted, my father kept telling me, you know, sigue escribiendo, sigue escribiendo, you know. So when your dad said sigue escribiendo and, and you mentioned you weren't happy, was that with your corporate life or was that with the writing or the self-imposed that all of us immigrant kids <laughs> put on, put on yeah. ourselves to give back? Yeah, I think I really wasn't happy with my day job. I remember the very first job I had, I I sat down at my desk and I was like, I can't do this. 40 years of this. I'm supposed to do this for 40 years. And even that felt a little bit like I was being a spoiled brat in some ways. Okay. So you have to sit at a desk. What is so wrong with that? You know what I'm saying? And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. All right. Pero como que me sentía como que mi alma se me, se me había escapado. I felt like the weight of some sort of routinized corporate existence just like very heavily on me. Right. And so of course the most yeah. natural thing to do is to go to law school. <laughs> Which is quite frankly, I mean, I liked law school, but the practice of law, I mean, depending on where you do it, can be even more soul sucking. And so I, I kind of didn't even think of the writing during that time, during that period after college, till about the time I took my very first writing class after after college. I didn't really even think of of writing. I didn't I didn't write except for you know the, the journal. And was law school the obvious choice because of the skills you would gain, or because of like the salary you would have afterwards? What made law school the obvious choice in this case? I mean, I really liked writing and I liked reading. I, I saw what the folks at my job were doing that were several several steps up on the corporate ladder. And I just didn't see myself doing that kind of work. Um, hmm. And and so I thought, you know, and I kind of, and I did, at the time I thought maybe I wanted to do something that's more meaningful and maybe more social justice oriented. And so I decided to go to law school. Nice. And you mentioned seeing yourself sitting down working for 40 years or plus and it just reminded me of one time my uncle saw me on he had visited us and he saw me working on my computer visiting my parents and working and I'm working on my computer he's like me gustaría trabajar sentado también yeah. <laughs> right feel guilty because our parents did not have that luxury to work sitting down like their work is so manual it's manual labor and so I definitely relate to that sense of am I being a spoiled brat by complaining about sitting right. down also on the acknowledgement you mentioned that your mom taught you to never be afraid of hard work and to always love life how did your mom share that, those lessons with you we she actually didn't teach me that until after my dad died during that time that I was I went from advertising to law school to corporate law and everything in between. My father got sick with cancer and he unfortunately passed away from it. And I found, I found my mother really, I hope she doesn't listen to this, really struggling with uh, finding a sense of joy after he died, which I think was common when you lose someone that, that close and that, that dear to you. But she somehow found, found joy in things that maybe I overlooked uh, a song, um, a a walk um going going to the park with a friend those those, those minor minor things that oh that seem minor right but even now with the pandemic one can really appreciate a solo walk or even just calling a friend but she would find ways to find joy even though i knew she was really struggling with my father's absence yeah and i'm sorry you lost your father thank you um 
So tell us about life in Peru. I know you were born in Lima and what was life like in Peru, if you remember, and at what age did you come to the U.S. or what have you been told about life in Lima? Yeah, so I, my parents came over when I was about 18 months old, I want to say. I have no living memory of Peru as a, as a child, obviously. Well, you know, before we came over, right? But, and then we didn't get our green cards until I was about, I was about nine when we got our permanent residency. And so that's when we went to Peru. And during my childhood, we went about three times. And as an adult, I went twice afterwards. But but as a kid, yeah, we went three times. And I was born in Lima. My dad is from Callao. And my mother is from Pucallpa. And so we... And, and like I grew up with a very... With a lot of Pucallpa in my life. The food um, felt very much like it was like Pucalpina. Juanes were like a thing. Every June, it was like Juanes. And even like the the way my mother worked really hard to get rid of her of her accent but she's still every once in a while como que le sale but we would travel to Lima spend a few days there visiting my parents family in Callao but then most of the time we would be in Pucallpa and so I remember my my, I mean, my most vivid memories are of being in Pucallpa being you know going down the Rio going down to like to Yerinacocha visiting um, the little plot of land that my grandfather cosas or whatever pero, pero in sí like Lima, Lima was just like not, Lima was like not a happy place, it was Pucallpa. Pucallpa was always like the happy place. But I do remember very, that there were also moments of violence, uh, you know, during my trips. In 89, when I went, I remember my aunt and I were at, I forget which university, wherever it was that she was studying at the time in Lima. And we were watching a movie. It was late. Well, not late, but it was in the evening. Um, y un coche bomba went off a few blocks away. Y me acuerdo que las ventanas, like, explotaron. And so they went inward. And my aunt threw me to the ground and sort of rolled me on beneath a, a table. Um, and even the nights in Pucallpa were, were very... There were bullet holes in some of my... Like, my grandmother's... Uh, my grandmother lived in a wooden house. Um, y se veía, you know, lo, lo, lo in, in la madera. Um, and I had an aunt. She was married to my uncle, my, my mother's brother, who eventually left to join Sendero. So it was, it was, I have, I have very fond memories of it, but I also, so I'm, I'm not, I wasn't, I wasn't blind and my parents didn't try to like shield me from the violence that was very prevalent there. Did you, so you went in 89 and I'm actually very surprised because that, yeah, your parents didn't shield you from that. And, and there were so many, so many other uh, people that I spoke to that their parents tried to shield them from that experience. And some of us could not get shielded from it, right? Like even if our parents tried, but New York City in and of itself was going through very hard times in the eighties and early nineties. And so did you feel safer in one place over the other? Did, did it feel like home at all? Or, or you always felt more at home in, in New York City? It, it, it was exciting to go to Peru because I was going to visit cousins and see people who looked like me <laughs> and like, you know, and, and I really, I was a very awkward child and I didn't have very many friends. I looked very different from the people that I went to school with and the food that I brought to school was very different. And so I, I really looked forward to just being around family. So I didn't, I just took the violence there as being just part of what it is to be there. Um, which is sad, right? That that's, that that's sort of like how it's a bit, it was somewhat normalized, I guess. Same in New York. I remember 
when I went, you know, when I went to high school, I took the train when I was 14 years old. I was taking the train from Brooklyn into the Lower East Side. And my primo, I call him my primo, but he's like a family friend. Me dio un, you know, a, a, um, whatchamacallit, a switchblade I could carry around just in case, you know, I needed it. And my parents found it and she, they were like, but it's just, that's just kind of, I don't know that I, I, I hate to say it was normalized, but I kind of just accepted that that was the way of the, of, of each world. I think that I've always felt more home in Brooklyn, um, than any, than any place else in the world for sure. I know on the book, one of my observations was that it was a very raw view of New York City without losing its sense of possibilities. Is that how you see also New York City as? Yeah, I see New York City as just as a place where one can can dream and be inspired and nurture whatever aspiration it is that one has. It can be transformative in many ways. And I know that some people, you know, will probably say, oh, she's giving this very romanticized view of New York City and it's, I don't and I don't find it romanticized I, re, I remember the bombings the, the, at the World Trade Center obviously I was here when the when the centers were the World Trade Center was attacked in 2001 and I've seen the city go through its ups and downs with the recessions and certainly with the pandemic so I know that it can be a very hard and like you described a very raw place but I've also found it to be a very giving place and a place that I can be who I am without really any inhibitions. I've interviewed other other Peruvians from New York City, and they, they also feel the same way about New York, how they can sort of really be themselves because everybody is trying to make it in their own way and don't have time to make, <laughs> to kind of put judgment on you and, and how you carry yourself. Tell us about how your parents decided to come to the U.S. What was that process like for them? I know you mentioned you got your green card at nine years old. Did you understand what was the legal situation? I came at the age of 10 and also it took some time for us to get a green card. And so I did experience being undocumented and remember having a sense of it, but maybe not as much as my parents, so. Uh, well, my parents came because the economy in Peru was failing. I mean, it just was not, they were buying, at one point I remember my, my mother telling me they were buying milk for me from like the back of someone's truck and they had to like, not even a truck, like a station wagon and they had to drive out however many miles from Lima to even buy milk. And so it just, they just didn't see a stable future there financially. And it was just getting very violent. And so they left. They came here on a couple of tourist visas overstayed, as one does sometimes. And, you know, they, 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 I mean, they knew what, what was, what was up, right? They knew that they would be undocumented. And I knew that we were undocumented. I honestly cannot recall ever not knowing that we, that I, we weren't only because my mother had one time I remember she opened the door and someone some INS agents were looking for a neighbor and she thought that that's it that they were gonna take us or whatever but she told them she didn't know who, who they were looking for and they left 
And then she did have, one of her factories did have a raid once and the INS officers, as she recounts it, she was very heavily pregnant with my youngest brother and they saw her. So I didn't, and my brothers I knew did not have the same problem. I remember thinking that, oh, I have this problem where I could probably be separated from my parents or we could be taken away from my brothers. But my brothers did not have that problem. I remember always thinking that, oh, they're fine. And maybe we can stay because they were both born here. And I'll tell you a funny story or maybe not so funny story. When um, I was seven, we, we, seven or eight, no, I can't recall. We, we were interviewed by some immigration officers as part of getting our permanent residency. And I remember this one woman who asked me, she was an officer. She asked me if my parents had ever taken me out of the country, if we'd ever gone on vacation anywhere. And I said, no, she's like, you've never been on a plane. And I said, no. And I remembered very vividly. And she was asking me that because she wanted to see if they had taken me out, in which case they could deny us our residency. So, so yeah, it was, I mean, I knew that I, I wasn't, I was very much aware that uh, I didn't belong for lack of a better word. Yeah. That resonates a lot with me too, because I also had to answer questions and I had to learn the answer to the questions. I had to learn the stories, right? Um, how would you say immigration has changed you and your parents? I mean, immigrating here to the, to the United States. I don't, I, I mean, I, I don't know what my life would have been like had I stayed, had we stayed in Peru. Um, I imagine, and this is me completely uh, making very large, you know, generalizations that might be erroneous, but I would imagine that had I stayed there, I might not have had the same educational opportunities that I had here. My mom is always like, I believe that. I also, uh, I'm not sure if my, I'm not sure how my thinking would have been either about my, my outlook on life and my idea of what it's like to, to be a woman navigating Peru. I don't know how I would have navigated Peru necessarily with their social system the way it kind of is, um, you know, being who I am. Um, I'd like to think that I would be protesting and doing all the things that I do here, but I don't know. I don't know if I would have sort of just, I don't know if my, if maybe my parents would have discouraged me from, from all of those things. Um, I don't know. Them, I think it definitely affected them in a very positive way. I think that they did have, I think that they didn't have to conform to sort of, to, to any sort of gender expectations being here. And I think a lot lot of the the stereotypes that are typically that one being in Peru typically has to live with um this idea of being of, of, of whether you're from the provincia or from the capital whether you're blanco negro indígena you know all the, i mean that's all that stuff is still it's still relevant i think here in the community i think that we that they still bring some of that here but i feel like there is there's definitely a a i don't want to say a shedding but certainly more of a challenging like people are challenging those expectations and those and those uh, stereotypes more here. Yes, um, and I think that's something that I really appreciate about the book that you mentioned on that social system that exists in Peru and that we bring here, right? And and particularly those of upper class in Peru that are lighter skin, que son limeños, quieren venir acá y traer todo ese sistema social y tratar a la gente, tal vez menospreciarla de la misma manera que lo hubieran hecho en Lima, you know? And and so I guess coming to uh, to here to, to New York, did 
did you interact with other Peruvians? Did you see those dynamics being played here? Um, one story I do have about that is I, I shared it before when I was in elementary school, there was a kid whose dad was del consulado trabajaba or something like that. And he basically, he knew that I wasn't the same level as him in Peru, but here in the U.S., we're going to the same school, right? We are in the same social class. And so he made it very apparent that if we were in Peru, this would not be the same. And so what is your, your experience with Peruvians here in the U.S. and trying to keep that social system? Yeah, I've ha we did grow up with, with a lot of Peruvians in our circle. I found, I've, I've always found the community to be very old school Peruvian. I don't know how else to describe it. So I think you see a lot of some of that reflected in my book because that's what I grew up hearing, right? These kinds of discussions. And I'm like, all right, bueno, déjame escribirlo por acá y por allá. Y, you know, my best friend is also Peruvian. She's also, you know, sort of similar to me. She came when she was, when she was still a child. We get each other and she grew up, you know, here in Brooklyn and, and Queens and she's in the Bronx now, but we get each other on a way that's on a level that is very different. I mean, we can talk about these things and she gets it. So that experience has been positive, but I did feel like my father was lighter skinned. My mother was, is darker skinned. And so I did see that dynamic play out between the two of them. My brothers are darker than me. And it was always like, bueno, pero no estás más blanquita. Or oh, I remember when I got, when I started dating my, my husband's Polish. And I remember when I started dating him, my abuelita was like, ay, que bueno, hijita, estás arreglando la raza. I'm like, oh my God. Maybe I should just dump this guy <laughs> just to spite everybody, you know? Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that's just, hasta ahora. even like, you know, like, did you still, I still hear it. I still see, it. I try not to let it get to me too much. I remember my hair was a thing because it was it's so straight. My like angular features. Oh, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, what's wrong with that? That's, that's who we are. I don't even, I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> like, um, but those are the kinds of things you heard growing up, you know, como te querían dar complejo por, for, it's just, uh, I don't know. Looking back on it now, I'm just like, I can't even, like I can't. Right. <laughs> I, I remember the first time I went back to Peru, I was an adult and I had dyed my hair. I think it may be like highlights, but they look more subtle. And my family was, wow, is this your natural hair color? I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> Because they were looking at it as it's like, wow, like, I don't know, she's whiter or something like that. And I was like, no, this is totally fake. And so yeah. I, then I purposely will go with like jet black hair <laughs> over there just to spice people. Um, so one of the reasons I created this podcast was for others to see other Peruvians are succeeding in other fields. Because growing up here in the U.S., we try to stay connected with somehow with our Peruvian roots and culture, but at the same time being part of and assimilating to the American culture. But we don't see ourselves reflected in the American culture. And then the best examples, unfortunately, I had growing up about Peruvians was very limited. Laura was a thing. Everybody knew about Laura. I hated it was not a great representation for us. When can you share with us when a time when the lack of representation perhaps hurt you the most? Yeah, I never really, I can't say that I ever really consumed media to look for representation of myself. I just always knew that it was just not happening because that's just not, <laughs> that is not what the America was serving up. It's not what it's exporting um, to other countries. And even in the Spanish language stations, it's all la 
misma cosa, la misma, uh, whatever, I don't want to speak, but la misma porquería, right? You know, y aquí está the maid, una, you know what I mean? You know, it's the same, you know, the same, the same, sh know, the same shit, okay? Right, Entonces, right. it's like, I wasn't seeing, so I never, I, I never consciously looked at anything, hmm. you know, and was hoping to see myself reflected or to see my culture reflected because, paque, it wasn't going to happen, right? But I did find my experience growing up as an immigrant, as a child of immigrants in Brooklyn, represented in some literature, Dreaming in Cuban by Cristina Garcia. That was the first book that I read that I felt like, okay, here are all these different voices reflecting the different, the different struggles and the different conflicts, internal conflicts that one feels, you know, coming from sort of having their 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 feet on standing on on straddling two different lands. I saw it there. Quite frankly, I really only ever saw myself in my family and the community that I have here. And my parents were extremely social people. Growing up, they would have apartment parties like every weekend. I remember one summer in particular, it was like all the time they were having people over. You know, like like party parties, like not like, okay, 10 o'clock, you know, anta la escoba. No, it was like tres, cuatro, cinco de la mañana, like, okay, se van y recojan el pan, van a la casa, kind of thing, you know? And that's where I found, okay, these are, this is my community, right? But I never, I never looked toward to the media because I sadly knew that it was never going to reflect anything at all that, that, that looked like me or that would even culturally reference me. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely, that's, I mean, smart. If your parents raise you that way, I think it's smart. Uh, I think many of us look to, to the media and I mentioned in a previous episode how one teacher in high school made me look for a Peruvian scientist just so I could have somebody that I could say, look, this is a Peruvian scientist who made it in the U.S. And so, but that's one of the reasons I created this podcast because I, I do see so many Peruvians succeeding out there and, and making positive contributions. And so I do want to highlight them and share them with other Peruvians. You mentioned that you, your husband's Polish, Polish and you have two children. How are you incorporating both cultures <laughs> to your kids? Yeah. Good question. We have them in a public school here that has in there has a dual language program, and the dual language is Polish. My mom, thankfully, is able to help me a few hours a day, a couple of days a week, and so she speaks to them in Spanish. I speak to them in Spanish. Entonces, como que manejan mejor el español que el polaco. I mean, certainly, like English is their primary, but then the food is very Peruvian. If you try to make them like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich they're like this is not food they're like where's my arroz con pollo they ask my mom for empanadas um they love all of that and so that's what they ask for they don't ask for mac and cheese which is gross anyway but like they ask for peruvian food now i am not a fan of polish food i don't know if you've ever had it it's a little tricky but it's a little tricky on your tummy so you gotta go to a good spot right if you're gonna have it at least in my opinion but 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 them maybe because they're little too but they've got like stomachs of steel they will eat borscht and you know um kielbasa and those like massive sausage like thing and they just love it and i'm just like oh man my, guys like my stomach i maybe drink some of the soup pero el resto de la comida me queda tan pesada que like, i can't so we try to incorporate it with the language with the food hopefully i had wanted to go to peru this year but that's not gonna happen so um i don't think um but hopefully we can make it to peru and to poland sometime in the next couple of years that's awesome yeah i i always love to ask to see how um, everybody's sort of sharing those traditions with their family and of course food it's we love our food so we're going to share it with the next generation 
So I want to transition to some questions that the audience submitted in one of the Instagram stories that I did earlier. So I'll just share a few questions with you. One of the questions submitted was like, what do you miss most about Peru? I miss Pucallpa. I miss Pucallpa. Um, the last time I was there was, oh my God, I don't know, 17 years ago, 16 years ago. I, I tried to go with my husband when we went 10 years ago, but he needed some vaccines or whatever. And we didn't get the vaccines. Um, so we couldn't go. But I miss Pucallpa. I remember, I remember it being or feeling very magical. Um, there was an element of, it, it, it almost felt ethereal and there was a veil between this world and, and the next, for lack of a better phrase or lack of a better description, especially in the evenings there. It smelled like the earth itself could almost disappear into the sky. It was just oh, a wow. very, it was just a very magical place to me. My grandmother's 101 years old and she's, she's here in New York now, but that's where I would spend time with her and my cousins. I just miss it. And I miss, I miss um, the smells, the, the sounds of the water. I miss the people. So that's probably what I miss most about Peru. Wow. I have not been to Pucallpa, but I'm putting it on my list now to go once we're able to travel back. So another question that was submitted was, if you or your parents had to do it all over again, would you leave Peru? Why or why not? Yes, I think so. I think my parents would have left um, because my mother, I think for real, felt her marriage was in peril. Um, but also, um, I do think that, that she didn't want to feel uh, or that they didn't want to feel they were in their futures or, or, or their children's futures was inhibited in any way, whether it's whether it be by the social structure, the economic instability, or whatever the case may be. And I, I, I don't, I can't, I've thought about what my life would have been had, had we stayed. I, I don't, I don't know. I think maybe I would have tried to leave at some point just to, just to see, right. Just to see what else I could be, what else is out there. And maybe I would have found my way back and maybe eventually I will find my way back. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think that, yeah, we would have left for sure. What advice do you have for aspiring writers? For anyone, if you write, you are a writer first and foremost. I think that for me, I had a very hard time even claiming that word because it didn't feel like I could say that I was a writer. Um, but if you are a writer, but if you write, you are a writer getting, getting published and being like a published novelist or a published poet that or published essayist like that, that does, um, that is, that is a, a, a different kind of accomplishment. And so I would tell my younger self to continue writing and, and do it not so much for the goal of being published, but to just do it because you love it. What authors or writers have influenced your writing and your storytelling the most? I love Cristina Garcia's work. I've mentioned her before. I love Mario Vargas Llosa. I love his work. Certainly, I feel even like more my reading more contemporary work has, has really influenced me and continues to inspire me. Ada Limon's poetry is extremely beautiful. Yeah, I have two of her collections here and I tend to go to poetry to get just into the work. And one book that I feel everyone should read is Blood of the Dawn. I don't know if you if you know this book, but it's by, by um, Claudia Salazar Jimenez. She is an mm -hmm. incredible Peruvian writer. She lives here in New York. I think she works at NYU or Columbia, I can't recall. But I like would totally fangirl if I saw her or met her. <laughs> that book is remarkable. It is like just a 
so powerful. And so for me, I need to, like, I, I find inspired, like I, what inspires me are, are certainly those, those folks that have written, have a vast, a vast body of work, but the contemporary writers are the ones that I go to when I want to, I'm curious to see what people are doing, but she's great. And you should definitely read her book. Awesome. I love that recommendation. And I'll add this to the episode notes for anybody who's, who's listening. And just as we wrap out, what message do you have for Peruanos in Peru? And what message do you have for Peruvians here in the U.S.? Peruanos in Peru. Um, honestly, I'm very inspired by the protests. I'm very inspired by how folks are taking to the street and standing up. That takes a lot of courage. That takes a lot of heart. I, I sometimes feel as someone who's so far away and not living it, like I almost can't, uh, like I don't know how to actually help, but I feel like one of the most powerful things that any individual can do is, is protest and speak up. And I think that what I admire it so much, what they're, what, what, what folks are doing in, in, in the streets of Peru today. And so the Peruvians here, we need people to speak up here too, <laughs> you know, hit those streets when there's a protest, go to those marches, go to those rallies. It's super important. Um, if you can, or find other ways, um, to, to, to stand up for what's right. This, th this place can be hard. I mean, and New York, the U S really any place that you immigrate to from your home. But I think that there's always, there's always a way to build community, find community and really to muster the courage that one needs to not so much to achieve their goals, but to walk and and to walk towards it and i think even that the process itself is probably what is truly the most meaningful aspect of the journey. Wow. I thank you for your advice, for your message, again, for writing this book that made me feel so incredibly seen. I will add all the links on the description notes. If people want to continue to follow you and all the work that you're doing, how can they stay connected with you? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Melissa Rivero underscore, or visit my web. They can visit my website too. My contact information is there depending on, you know, how they want to reach out to me. It's all of it. There. All right. Thank you, Melissa, so much for joining me in this conversation. Thank you. Just wanted to take a break here to share that Peruvians of USA now has an online store. Help us spread the message that El Mejor Amigo de un Peruano es Otro Peruano by visiting our online store. We also have feminine versions that said La Mejor Amiga de una Peruana es Otra Peruana or gender neutral versions. This could be the perfect gift for a Peruvian in your life. Visit the link on the episode notes or link in bio. All right, back to the episode. Thank you for listening to Peruvians of USA. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and review an Apple podcast. It lets other Peruvians find the show. If you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Peruvians of USA. I'm looking forward to connecting with you there. All right. Talk to you soon. Ciao.